Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. This week, we are joined by Latanya Mapfred, President and CEO of the Global Fund for Women. I'm sitting down with Latanya after her appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on October 29, 2021. Welcome, Latanya. Thank you, Carrie. So my first question for you, and you've been working in the development field for your whole career. How have you seen the development field evolve throughout your career, both positively and negatively? Well, thank you for the opportunity to join you um, at CID. And, you know, and I, I, I really at this point in my life is shocking almost that it's been 30, a little over 30 years in this field. And starting at a multilateral like UNICEF was such an amazing opportunity to get to see how the UN works with its partner governments. And I was in, you know, a few countries, including Ethiopia, Pakistan, and uh, Lesotho. And to see how the work really in partnership could be done jointly. And then I went to a bilateral with the U.S. Foreign Service with USAID, where so much of the actual solutions were being developed in headquarters. And, you know, and we had things like the Millennium Challenge account that was happening. I worked on that in Mali. But still, those efforts did not shift the power directly into the hands of the countries that we were, quote unquote, helping to develop. And what I've seen over time is that it has become very difficult in the bureaucracies of these kind of large organizations like the United Nations and USAID to really shift from the idea that those solutions have to be developed in their offices to what we, I think, all know intuitively, which is that those solutions have to come from the countries and the communities of where we're working. We've seen a great deal of failures, but where we did see success is the work around capacity building. And I hate to use that word right now because I think it's been overused, but in the beginning of my career, a lot of the work that we were doing with governments and organizations in country was really to help them stand up their own capacity capacity, their own ideas, their own approaches. And I would say in that regard, on a positive note, that we've been successful. I think now we just have to work on letting go and trusting that so much of the work that has happened in development over its first few decades serve to help us end up in the position where we are, which is a position to be able to trust. And for Global Fund for Women, that means to trust women, to trust champions and organizations and movements, to know what it is they need and when they need it, and not to send them through these overwhelming expectations around getting funding that I think we put on local organizations. Thank you so much, Latanya. And speaking of the shift that you've made now to the Global Fund for Women, how do you define feminist funding and why does the Global Fund for Women believe that this type of funding is key for achieving impact and development today? You know, feminist funding is, it's not a word that I actually knew my entire career. It was towards the end when I joined Planned Parenthood that I really started to understand this type of model uh, of feminist funding. It, it does mean that you're providing flexible funding straight to local grassroots leaders and groups to use as they wish. So instead of dictating priorities, feminist funds follow grantees' leadership, supporting them in addressing the needs, the opportunities, and challenges as they arise on their own terms. So, you know, we try to get rid of this concept 
of what we might call poverty porn, this concept that we have to go save communities and try to think of it much more as a strength that we have already capacity in countries that just need our support for resources. And that doesn't just mean money. Feminist funding means it could be any kind of resource. It could be amplifying voices through communications. It could be feminist technology being offered to further the movements. It could be so many different things. And I think thinking of that, thinking of it that way helps us think more about what we can do as a feminist fund. But feminist funds raise money to give to other organizations in the global South. And we mostly raise that money in the global North. And what we have seen is that so little of the funding that goes to gender equality actually ends up in the hands of grassroots women's organizations. And we're talking less than 1%. And so while we're trying to change that, I don't, I don't want to pretend that every organization or development organization has to reinvent the wheel, has to start over, has to go and find organizations, has to change their entire sort of model. And that is why feminist funds exist. We hope to be the bridge. We have the trusted relationships. And what we would like to do is to encourage the funding community to increase the amount that they provide even if it's through organizations like ours, so we can get it to the grassroots women's organizations as opposed to thinking, well, there is no operational way to do that. And we'd like to have them look at the models that are already present and feminist funding is one model and there are others, but to look at the feminist funds as a way to be able to achieve the goals of getting communities the funds that they need and the resources that they need to make transformational social change happen. Thank you so much. That was a really, a really great explanation of the active, the goal of the Global Fund for Women. And so in a podcast that you did when you were starting your position at the Global Fund for Women, you stated that you wanted to use your first year as a year of reflection. Now, two years later, what did you learn from that experience and how has it impacted your work during these past two years? Thank you. Wow. Yes, it's been a a minute. Um, It feels like because of COVID, it's been dog years. So it's been about two and a half years now. And that first year of reflection was an opportunity to move around. I think I, I may have mentioned that, you know, we're in six regions, 175 countries with thousands of partners around the world who I really just wanted to hear from. I wanted to make sure that we were on the right journey. In a a couple of years, we'll be 40 years old at the uh, Global Fund for Women. And we started with this notion, this wild notion, right? That we should just give money to women to do what they do because women know what to do to help their communities and their families and their countries. And so while, you know, hopefully that is no longer a notion that sounds incredibly wild, we have been on a journey. We've had the opportunity, and this is what I heard in my first year of reflection, to hear that, you know, Global Fund for Women has not only been one of the few organizations that actually fund women champions directly. And we mean, you know, actually funding the the women who are doing this work without organizations 
organizations to actually get them to help build an organization around themselves. And so we went through that for a while, our first couple of years of doing that. And then we knew that in order for this to be sustainable, that these women needed to build these organizations and we needed to fund these gender justice organizations. And so our model kind of shifted into okay, now funding these organizations directly with flexible long-term funding because that's what they needed. And we were okay with you spending that money on, let's say, for salaries because so many of the funding communities said that they would not do that. And so if they couldn't actually build their organizations, then how were they going to be able to do the work and make the change happen? And so we became the organization that was known for actually standing up and seeding organizations, which included a great number, dozens of what we call sister funds. So other feminist funds that were less global than ours, but they were probably regional, sub-regional, and national funds, and thematic. Um, So there are also funds that are focused on specific areas like climate or LGBTQI. And so we became known for that. And now as I came into the leadership and what I was hearing from the community was that the notion around collective movements and social movements around gender justice and how they work together and how they can make an impact together in times when there's been a moment, I call it, a moment of of need. Uh, For instance, in Kenya, when there was a, a large abortion case before the Supreme Court, how does the collective groups come together and really maximize that moment to be able to achieve some of the things that for decades they've been wanting to do around abortion advocacy? And so that is the kind of thing that we are now going to be focused on. And based on those reflections in that year of reflection, we came up with a strategy that is very focused on movement capacity. It's based on listening to movement. So we want to use technology and artificial intelligence to be able to listen to when things are happening. I mean, who knew that uh, George Floyd would be murdered in the way he was and that the Black Lives Movement would get such a spark opportunity to really highlight the issues around racial inequality, both in this country and and around the world. But those are the moments we're listening for. Those are the moments that we trust that the collective actors know are happening and they don't need resources, you know, a year after that. They need resources right now to organize their communities to be able to get to the work and demand the justice that is required. And that is where Global Fund for Women is focusing these days. On that subject of Black Lives Matter and all of these different intersectional movements, how do you and how does the Global Fund for Women center intersectional feminism in their work? So as you know, I mean, intersectional feminism has been a cornerstone of the work that Global Fund for Women does, partly because we don't ask that organizations silo their work. We're not asking you not to work on sexual and reproductive health if you work on HIV AIDS, right? So we know those things go together and those are, that's a very easy connection that I just mentioned. But we're also not saying to an organization that does gender-based violence that now you can't work on climate justice. You know, we're not saying to them that the widgets that you have to bring with these funds means that you have to really just focus on one thing. And so we have seen, and and I, I use COVID as an example of how intersectional feminist movements have been able to really pivot and focus on where the needs are. And so, yes, it's COVID. Yes, we needed PPEs. Yes, we needed to address out of school children. But then we also saw this incredible uptick in domestic violence. 
And so groups who had been working maybe on, you know, girls' education now had to start pivoting towards how do we address the needs of women who and their children who are home and experiencing excessive violence in the home. And we know that intersectional feminism means that you want a woman to be able to show up as her whole self and work on all of those issues. We've seen an incredible, I think, interest now in the care economy and what that means. In the care economy, I don't care which you know sector you're working in, for women has always been an issue, right? And so we don't, we're not asking now that, um, and I see this unfortunately with some of the funders, you know, that if you're going to work on the care economy, then that's your goal. It's not, it's just a part of a broader goal of work that you're doing around gender justice, because you can't separate these women into these pieces and neither should funding be done in that way. And so when I think about intersectional feminism, it means that we have to support women as they are, as they show up in their current circumstances in their communities. Another big criticism of development assistance is that donors who provide funds for development introduce limiting conditions or strings attached, and you've mentioned this a little bit, to that funding. So how does the Global Fund's fundraising strategy as both a receiver of funds and a giver of funds support its organizational values and mission? That's a great question, Carrie. Thank you so much. I alluded to this a little bit with the first question, but I do think that what Global Fund for Women wants to achieve, you know, on two parts, right? So is we want to increase the amount of funding that goes towards gender equality in grassroots women's organizations, but we also want to put less of the stress of getting those funds on the groups that we work with. And so what that means is that Global Fund for Women has had to set itself up to be able to receive funding from donors like government donors, like we are, uh, the Swedish government is a great example of a government that we work with. And what we do is we try to bear the, the burden, I'll call it, of the needs of the bureaucracy in Sweden, right? So we do know that the audit requirements, the safety requirements, um, you know, all of the banking and, you know, sort of all of the reporting, we want to take that burden at Global Fund for Women. We want to take it off these women and their groups who are trying to really spark social change and say, listen, we will take those funds. We will get you all of the requirements that your bureaucracy needs, but we will give it to the women unrestricted so that they can do the work that they need to do. And I will tell you that with the Swedish government and we hope with other governments in the near future that they'll see the value of doing it that way. They'll see the value of not asking for widgets. And when I say widgets, I'm just being facetious, but I mean like it's classic to say if you're working in the gender-based violence field that uh, we will give you money to reach, you know, let's just say a thousand women or 2000 women. And then you come back with a report that shows that, and then you have all these documents that prove that. And what we're saying is that that's not necessary. What we want to do is trust that the women who are doing this work are not only reaching the one to 2000 that you're asking for, but they're reaching even more by way of how they work in their communities and in their countries. And we're not asking them like, if we give you this much to reach that much, we're saying to them, hey, we are giving you this money to fix the social issues in your communities and in your countries that need to be fixed. And that's what they do. So when we talk about gender justice movements, we're talking about giving people the right to be able to address the issues that are most impactful 
for them that allows them then to make the social changes in the most fundamental and impactful way that they can. And so that's where we see ourselves at Global Fund for Women. It's like, I think we all want the same thing. I just think the way we approach it in Global Fund for Women is a bridge to be able to help us get to that. That's a really great analogy in terms of how to center local voices. And on that subject, this is my last question. What advice do you have for young professionals who are hoping to center local voices and local solutions in their careers and development? Yeah, Carrie, that's a great question. And, and, and you know, my hope is I have a 15 year old daughter, so I tell her this all the time. But my hope is to show up in those spaces. And if you don't see people who look like the people that your organization company or you know government is working for if they're not around the table then you have to speak up it's so important in order for us to reach the goals that we've been talking about together carrie is that we have the people at the table helping us i the global fund for women has an advisor council of 300 women mostly previous grantee partners but also an uh, adolescent advisory council you know so our governance has to be built of people who are in this game right not just recipients of it and so i you know for me i one of the things that i really try to impress upon young people is to really use your voice and your privilege to make sure that power is shared. And you can only do that if you are sitting in a room and everyone around that table looks just like you, it's a problem. You need to, to make sure that those that are the most marginalized and are recipients of the programs that you're administering are at the table. And so that's the thing that I would lean into. There are so many other great things you can do, but I just say using your voice on this shifting of privilege and power is going to be super important if we're going to get to more than just rhetoric around some of these issues. Thank you. I think that's great advice, especially for the, the Harvard community, which has its own inherent privilege that needs to be shared. Mm. Thank you so much for your time today, Latanya. You can find out more information about Latanya's work at the Global Fund for Women at www.globalfundforwomen.org. And you can follow her on Twitter at Latanya Fret. Thank you again, Latanya Mapfret, for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.